0: Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole.
1: And I'm Brian. And we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada.
0: Welcome to our seventh mini-failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces.
1: Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode of Failureology.
0: Essentially, we have a list of failures that we want to talk to you about, but haven't been able to dig up enough information to talk about them for 45 minutes.
1: These episodes are also just the failures, so no news and no fake advertisement.
0: It's like Failurology light.
1: This week's mini-failure is about the Gimli Glider, an Air Canada 767 aircraft that was going from Montreal to Edmonton that didn't quite make it all the way to Edmonton.
0: Not even close.
1: Kind of less than halfway, I would say. Yeah. To some place near Winnipeg, Manitoba called Gimli. On july twenty third, nineteen eighty three, shortly after eight PM central time, the fuel pressure alarm sounded in the cockpit on the left side. The pilots, they assumed the fuel pump failed and turned off the alarm since the engines were gravity fed in level flight. Then the fuel pressure alarm sounded on the right side, and they made a decision they were going to divert to Winnipeg. Almost right away, the left engine failed, and the pilots planned for a single engine landing while simultaneously communicating with Winnipeg and trying to restart the left engine. Then, just like the fuel pumps, the right engine failed. The 767 has two engines, and neither of them at this point are working. Since no complete engine failure was expected to occur, this scenario hadn't really been covered in training. Seems like a slight oversight, I understand why they didn't do it, it's a very uncommon thing, and unfortunately with airplanes, as I'm sure most of you know, you can't just pull over to the side of the road. In fact, you aren't even on the road. So in preparation to land in Winnipeg, at this point they're at 35,000 feet, flight level 350 or 10,700 meters above sea level.
0: When they lost both engines, unfortunately, they also lost all of their instruments, except for a few basic ones powered by battery.
1: Yeah, so the 767, this is one of the first jets that was designed with electronic flight instruments that were powered by the engines.
0: So when both engines stopped working, almost everything went dark. The 767 has a ram air turbine that swings out from a compartment and then that converts air flowing past the plane to rotational movement and powers some hydraulic systems and some emergency systems, which is good news, but not quite as many systems as they needed to really fly the plane. So they're kind of flying blind at this point, I think.
1: Yeah. So they have some systems working. Unfortunately, one of the things that is not powered by the ram air turbine in, in this version of 767 is is the vertical speed indicator. So the vertical speed indicator shows a climber descent rate in feet per minute, which is fairly important for landing operations, especially when you don't have any engines. It's really useful to know how quickly you're descending.
0: Yeah, that seems like a really important feature that was missing. So the captain on this plane, Bob Pearson, he had 15,000 hours as a pilot, and he was also an experienced glider which is kind of the perfect coincidence here because, you know, Gimli Glider. So he knew to flew the plane at the optimal glide speed to have the maximum range and therefore the largest choice of landing sites. So he was able to adjust how they were flying the plane to get it to fly as far as they could while losing as little height or elevation as they could.
1: Which is really important when you don't have any engines. You're trying to stretch that range as much as you can. Because again, like Nicole said, it maximizes the number of landing sites that you can put this 767 down on. Um, with the 767, this is a, a large aircraft. They're used on international flights for oceanic routes and you know certainly all across North America. Um, so these airplanes need considerable distance to land and take off from. So there's a lot of smaller airports that either weren't long enough or they weren't wide enough to support the 767. Typically, the, these aircraft operate out of Vancouver and Calgary and Edmonton, larger international airports. And when you lose both engines near Winnipeg, Manitoba, there aren't a lot of large airstrips that are close by.
0: So Pearson guessed that the speed would be about 220 knots or 410 kilometers per hour. Every 10 nautical miles or 19 kilometers, they lost about 1,500 meters of elevation, which gave the plane a glide ratio of about 12 to 1. Some dedicated gliders can do ratios up to 50 or even 70 to 1, but the gliders that are used by Air Cadet Regional Gliding School, they have a glide ratio of about 22 to 1. So, you know, there's varying successes of gliding, I I would guess. I've never been in a glider
1: Yeah, so I've done I've done some glider flying and I've I've actually glided out of Gimli, Manitoba, which is where some of the air cadet programs start gliding for their for their regional gliding schools. So the air cadet program, at least when I was in the air cadet program, they used Schweizer 233 gliders. And those are great two person gliders. So there's a there's a pilot in the front and then an instructor in the back. And those have a glide ratio of 22 to one. Uh, like Nicole mentioned, there's some other dedicated gliders, higher performance gliders that are in that 50 to 1 or 70 to 1 or, um, you know, even a little bit higher than that for a glider issue where they're set up as high performance gliders. They have a very long wingspan here in Alberta on the Rocky Mountains. Some of these gliders will do some really cool ridge soaring when we get some turbulent activity and some good winds over the mountains. And these gliders, some of them are pressurized. They can, you know, they have oxygen on them so they can go up to 15, 20, 25,000 feet. In a glider, which is which is really neat. Um, unfortunately, the seven six seven is not designed for gliding.
0: You don't say.
1: But like all aircraft, it will glide. It won't drop directly out of the sky. It still does have aerodynamic properties. And, and Bob Pearson set this up with a with a fairly decent, I think, glide ratio. Twelve to one is not not a poor glide ratio. Some of the the initial training aircraft that a lot of people fly, their glide ratio is kind of sitting around seven to one as a glide ratio. So 12 to 1 for a large aircraft is not a terrible glide ratio. The first officer on this flight uh, was Maurice Quintel, and he had served in the Royal Canadian Air Force. And at one point he was stationed in Gimli, Manitoba. And what Maurice Quintel didn't know, in was it in the time period between when he was stationed there and when this incident happened, is that Gimli had been converted to a drag racing complex or a racing track complex. So there's a there's a road course that's there and a drag strip. And at the time of this incident, they're actually conducting drag races on what used to be one of the runways in Gimli, Manitoba.
0: Obviously, they had to land this plane somehow, some way. And without any power, they used a gravity drop to lower the landing gear. When they did this, the main gear locked in place, but the nose didn't. So essentially, when you... Like when you set up a folding table and you flip the legs out, you have to lock that that middle piece that goes on an angle to the other side of the table. You have to lock that in place or the arms will just collapse. So the the main gear, what's kind of, you know, mid to rear plane, those locked in place, but the nose didn't. And so essentially what happens and we're going to get to this part when they landed, the nose landing gear basically collapsed and the nose was gliding on the on the runway. As the plane slowed down to land, the ram air turbine that they were using to control the plane also had reduced power because it had less air running across it, making the landing that much more difficult. They were also coming in a bit too high and too fast. So they tried to cross the controls by applying the rudder in one direction and the ailerons in the other direction. And this further impacted the ram air turbine.
1: Yeah, so, so cross controlling or crossing the controls like Nicole mentioned, it's one of the techniques that pilots have when they're a little bit high on approach, to lose some altitude in a fairly quick manner. So, like Nicole mentioned, there's typically when we fly, we would have, if we want to go to the left, we would put in some, we'd roll to the left or turn the turn the control column to the left, and then we'd apply left rudder. So that makes a very nice, smooth, coordinated turn. But with uh, crossing controls, so left aileron and right rudder, It kind of creates a skidding motion with the airplane, but it it allows the airplane to come down a little bit quicker. Which when there's no option to go around, like we would typically have when there's no engines, so there's no go around option. You need to be able to make the runway. And with the gear not being down and locked in all three of them, getting down at the start of the runway was really, really, really important just to maximize the amount of runway that they had to use. Because with the engines not being operational, they also lost some other systems in there. It didn't have full capacity on, on some of the other systems that you would typically use for braking related purposes or, you know, any sort of engine braking that was available. So getting down at the start of the runway or as close as they could to the start of the runway is very, very important in this scenario.
0: Also interesting, something that I probably wouldn't have thought about until reading about this, with both of the engines out, the plane made very little noise. So the people on the ground had almost no idea that the plane was coming. And it kind of makes me think of, you know, there's a lot of electric cars, a lot more electric cars on the road than there used to be. And they don't make any noise either. And so there's been a lot of incidents of pedestrians getting hit by cars because they can't hear them coming. And so some cars have to have essentially like a white noise type speaker on it to make car sounds when it's in high traffic areas, which I thought was really interesting and kind of funny.
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting. And and when pedestrians are out in public or, you know, around roadways, you expect that there are cars and vehicles. And even if you can't hear them, you expect cars to be driving on the runway, these guys who out drag racing would have no idea that any sort of aircraft was coming in. It, it had probably been years and years since there was an aircraft that had landed there, and now there's a giant airplane that does transoceanic flight. It's a it's a wide body aircraft, so uh, I believe this seven six seven is uh, eight abreast seating. So this is not a small aircraft that is suddenly silently trying to land on what used to be a runway. Uh, essentially coming out of nowhere, and, and like Nicole said, there's there's no sound that's coming from the engines, and here it is trying to land on a on a very short runway. When they do get the airplane down, like Nicole mentioned, the nose wheel wasn't locked in place, so this added some friction to the landing, which which did help them stop uh, before the end of the runway. There was also a guardrail in place to facilitate the drag kind of the drag operations, the drag strip on this at this airport. So they applied some extra right brake, which caused the main landing gears to hop over and straddle the guardrail. And there were a couple boys riding their bikes about 300 meters away from the landing site. And Captain Bob Pearson said they were close enough to see the terror on their faces, which
0: Could you imagine? I think as a,
1: as a kid, I was like, I'd be a little bit terrified. Uh, so, so I actually can't imagine this. I, when I was flying airplanes in, in Haiti, we had a slightly similar situation. We had both engines. But we were landing at a location that had a fence on one end and there was a river right, right by it. And a lot of the, the population, or a lot of the Haitian people would wash their clothes on the river and they would hang their clothes on, on this fence. And we had a situation where we needed to be down right near the start of the runway, which was just over the fence. And there was a woman that had her clothes drying on this fence and the look of terror in her eyes when we flew over the fence and we didn't clear it by very much. Was phenomenal. I, I actually thought that we were going to uh, hit this woman with one of the one of the main gears that we had on the airplane. Fortunately, we didn't hit this woman, but I can still see her looking up the airplane, and we made eye contact. And at that point, there wasn't wasn't much we could do. We thought she was going to stay to the side, and she didn't. She ran out at the last minute. But yeah, to to have an aircraft these these two kids that were very close to this airplane, this very large airplane, would be quite terrifying.
0: Yeah. So what happened to the plane? Why did they lose both engines mid-flight?
1: That's a really good question. We should probably talk about why that happened.
0: Yeah. So they essentially ran out of fuel, which is unfortunate, preventable, and embarrassing.
1: All three of those things. It's bad enough when you run out of fuel in your car, it's even worse when you run out of fuel in an aircraft, and it's even worse when there's passengers on board. Like, this is this is not something that should happen. Running out of fuel in an aircraft, not good. Not a good look.
0: It's it's sad, of course, because some people could have been really hurt. So, this, I mean, I'm laughing. This is not a, necessarily a laughing matter, but it's it's just so silly that it happened and how it happened. I'm going to get into some more detail, but essentially they got their metric and imperial units mixed up. And... They used the wrong units of measurement to calculate how much fuel was in the tank and then didn't add enough fuel to make, all, make it all the way to Edmonton.
1: Which happens a number of times in some various episodes that we've talked about. Unit conversion seems to contribute to a number of problems.
0: Yeah. So they ran out of fuel at 12,500 meters or flight level 410. As I mentioned, they mistook pounds for kilograms, and the aircraft only really had 45% of its required fuel load. Planes have a Fuel Quantity Indication System, or FQIS, with two redundant channels, but a design flaw caused it to fail when one of the channels failed. I think they missed the point of redundancy here on the design side. Redundancy means that you have a backup, not that when one fails, they both fail. That's not redundancy. Following a flight the day before the incident, an engineer at Edmonton ran a service check on the fuel quantity indication system, and this was according to a bulletin that was issued by Boeing. At that time, the system failed, which made the fuel gauges go blank as a result. Drawing an experience from a similar incident with the same aircraft a month prior, that engineer, in lieu of spare parts, fixed the problem by disabling the second channel and tagging the circuit breaker. He informed the pilot that was flying out of Edmonton the next day that the fuel would need to be measured with a float stick. However, there was a misunderstanding, and the information made it to Montreal and the change in crews in a highly muddled state. So it's, it's like we're playing a little bit of a game of telephone here. The information doesn't quite make it all the way to the end of the chain of command. To complicate this more, while the plane was on the ground in Montreal, a technician came into the cockpit and re-engaged the second channel of the fuel quantity indication system. He didn't realize what the first tech had done by disabling that second channel and he re-engaged it. He was also distracted by the fuel tank outside and never removed the tag from the circuit breaker. This caused the fuel gauges to remain completely blank. Another miscommunication led to the crew using only a dipstick measurement of the fuel tanks. The flight computer required the fuel quantity to be entered in kilograms of fuel, but the calculation was done in pounds per liter and that value was entered.
1: Yeah, so it, it appeared to the crew when they entered that value into the, you know, the flight data computer that they had sufficient quantity of fuel on board to make it from Montreal to Edmonton. Unfortunately, the calculation, like Nicole said, was not done in the in the same units. They just transferred the, the value that they got, assumed that it was in kilograms, even though it was done in pounds per liter. that in the in the flight data computer so it looked like they had enough fuel unfortunately physically there was not that quantity of fuel in the fuel tank which is why they wound up in Gimli, Manitoba.
0: yeah even more unfortunate is that they had intended to swap out the fuel quantity indication system once they arrived in edmonton they had a crew ready to install a working one that they had borrowed from another airplane And Air France Flight 447 that we covered in Episode 9, it had a similar scenario where the pitot tubes, they knew they had issues with them and they had been planning to repair them when they arrived back from the unfortunately fatal flight, you know, when that flight disappeared over the Atlantic. So it's really unfortunate. I, I question why they risk it when... It seems to me that it would have been much safer to, well, first of all, it would have been much safer to measure the fuel properly, but it also would have been much safer and probably smarter, more risk adverse to fly the working fuel quantity indication system to Montreal, install it there, and then fly the plane. Maybe that's just me.
1: It seemed to make sense at the time for them, but again, unfortunately, hindsight is like usual twenty twenty on this sort of thing. Air Canada did have a spare fuel quantity indicator. At the time of this incident, unfortunately, it wasn't working. I believe it wasn't working at the time, so which is why they borrowed one from another airline just to install in this aircraft. So there was a board of inquiry that was convened um, as a result of this incident, and they found Air Canada at fault for a number of things. First of all, the procedures weren't properly developed. They were lacking in training and manual selection. And the board of inquiry recommended that Air Canada adopt all metric units. And having a mixed fleet of aircraft and having mixed units within their aircraft, that was a really dangerous scenario. So this happened after Canada had converted to the metric system, but aviation, we still measure a lot of things in Imperial units, we'll measure in feet and inches of mercury and nautical miles per hour. So there's a lot of mixed units that do appear in aviation. So having this recommendation that Air Canada adopts an all metric uh, units for, for their fleet is is a really good recommendation. The airplane had already flown from Edmonton to Toronto to Montreal with the failed fuel quantity indication system without any incidents, so there's a there's a complacency that happens when nothing's happened, things have gone well, you haven't run out of fuel. And so the misreading occurred once in Montreal and then again in Ottawa by the same captain who is not used to flying with a metric system. This was the first aircraft in the Air Canada fleet to use kilograms on the fuel gauges, but the measurements needed to be entered in kilograms per liter. The fueler who checked the, the float stick reported the density in pounds per liter, which was a procedure at the time for other aircraft in the Air Canada fleet. So we have a number of different units and different procedures that are different between aircraft and the units that were needed in a flight computer and the units that they were measured in. So there's a lot of opportunity for a conversion error to happen in here. And, and unfortunately, that's largely what happened that allowed this airplane to run out of fuel Halfway, less than halfway to its destination.
0: So as Brian mentioned, Air Canada management was found responsible for, quote, corporate and equipment deficiencies. And that said, the flight and cabin crew were praised for their professionalism and skill. On top of the incident taking place at a time when when Canada was adopting the metric system and and, you know, people were getting used to operating in metric Which, you know, some people still struggle with today. Uh, So, you know, it's...
1: I still have no idea how tall I am in meters and centimeters (laughs) or how much I weigh in kilograms.
0: It's just on your driver's license.
1: I guess it does. But I tell them how tall I am in feet and inches and how much I weigh in pounds. And then it just shows up magically on my driver's license in the proper units.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. So on top of all that happening, this is also happening around the same time that flights were switching from... Three-person crews with a flight engineer to two-person crews, meaning that that flight engineer position had, you know, was becoming automated. And so, while while there's automation that does most of the tasks of the flight engineer, I I have to assume that some of those tasks now get placed on the pilot and the co-pilot. And therefore, the task of checking the fuel load was not properly reassigned from the flight engineer to someone else. So the the pilot Bob Pearson was just you know taking over that task and and I don't know if he had been told that it was in metric and just forgot or it's entirely possible that that was never even communicated to him in the first place. The investigation also found that Air Canada needed to keep more spare parts in its maintenance inventory. So had they had spare fuel indicating systems, they would have been able to make this repair quite a bit faster. Not only would they be able to make it sooner, but they really probably should have had it, you know, in, in multiple locations. I don't I don't quite know how they currently store their maintenance parts. I assume that there's a certain quantity of, of each part that they try to keep in all, in a lot of their, or, or a lot of their major hubs, but I, I'm not really sure how that works.
1: Yeah, that's essentially how they do things. They also have the ability now to, you know, if there's tires or wheel bearings in Toronto and they need them in Edmonton, they just chuck them on a flight. Because there's way more flights now than what they were back in, the, um, in 1983 when this happened. As part of the aftermath of this incident, Captain Pearson was demoted for six months and First Officer Quintal was suspended for two weeks. Three maintenance workers were also suspended. And then two years later, both the pilots, so Captain Pearson and First Officer Quintal, uh, were awarded the first ever Federation Aeronautic International Diploma for Outstanding Airmanship, which I think is a testament to their airmanship skill and their ability to bring this aircraft down from flight level 410 onto a very short location to land that used to be a runway. There were no fatalities for anyone that was on board this aircraft.
0: And I do want to mention, because I don't think we've said this yet, so there were 69 people on board, 61 passengers and 8 crew. I also think it's really interesting, so, you know, Captain Pearson, unfortunately, he was the person who was supposed to calculate the fuel, so he's, you know, he's kind of at fault for this incident occurring, but also, had he not been the one flying the plane with that glider experience, this could have been significantly worse. So it's just really interesting that they demoted him for six months. And then basically 18 months after that, they gave him an award for outstanding airmanship.
1: So it was Air Canada that demoted Captain Pearson for the six months. And then an outside federation gave him this award, the diploma for outstanding airmanship. So there there were two separate organizations that were involved in this.
0: That makes more sense.
1: So after this happened, you know, as part of training at Air Canada and and other airlines in in the simulators, Uh, They would run a very similar scenario to this, where you lose both engines at flight level 410. You're kind of the same winds, the same weather that happens when when Captain Pearson was dealing with this um, kind of same distance away from from Gimli or another airport. And almost all the time that they were trying to do this, all of the crews would crash this airplane in the simulator. So the fact that Captain Pearson, without any prior knowledge that this is going to happen recognized what was going on in the incident, they made an appropriate plan, they dealt with it very well, they recognized that they were high on the landing approach. You know, they dealt with that. And they got this airplane down on a fairly short runway for for a seven six seven. And we see this repeatedly in other aviation incidents. There's United two thirty two where they lost all three hydraulic systems and the number three engine and they wound up landing this airplane fairly successfully in Iowa. Unfortunately, there were some fatalities on that. But every time they run the scenario in the sim, or almost every time they run it in the sim, it ends in a complete loss of the airframe with significant fatalities on board. So the fact that these pilots can react essentially spur of the moment at the, at the time this incident occurs and have this airplane safely on the ground, and it only had, you know, there were only 10 injuries that came out of this incident, I think is quite a remarkable thing that you know, should be recognized. And I'm really glad that uh, the Federation did recognize Bob Pearson and First Officer Quintel for their airmanship and their, their piloting abilities in this. So after the airplane gets to Gimli, there's a temporary repair made to the, to the nose gear. And then the aircraft flew to the maintenance base that Air Canada had in Winnipeg two days later for a full repair. And then this aircraft, it was returned to full service with Air Canada. So if you've flown on a 767 that's Air Canada, Um, you could have actually flown on this aircraft that was part of the Gimli glider incident. Unfortunately, it's not part of the Air Canada fleet anymore. The last flight for this aircraft was on January 24th in 2008, where they flew the aircraft from Montreal to Tucson for scrapping of this aircraft, which happened in, in 2014. But on the last flight ever that this aircraft would operate, Captain Pearson and First Officer Quintel, as well as three out of the six flight attendants who were part of this, were actually on board the last flight of this aircraft, which, which I think is a really good send-off for the aircraft.
0: So there you have it, the Gimli Glider. Units are hard, but they're very important. What was thought to be a full refuel was only 45% of the required fuel load, leading to an emergency landing at a former Royal Canadian Air Force station in Gimli. Unfortunately, at the time, Gimli had been converted to a drag strip. This could have been a really tragic accident, but the pilot's glider experience saved the day and the lives of everyone on board.
1: Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology, or you can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye everyone. Talk soon.